Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. Enjoy and thanks for listening. Well, good morning and welcome to the series finale of Where Did It Go? Thank you for being here. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here. And with me is our fearless lead pastor, Eric Kohler. So give it up for Eric. And we've done this a couple of times in the past, but as we were preparing this series, this was kind of a a longer series for us. So Eric thought it'd be fun at the end of it to kind of circle back around and field any of the questions that sort of came up in regards to the different topics that we've uh, shared over the last several weeks, and so you did a great job, so you always do, and we collected some questions from you and kind of compiled those, and today, the format's going to be kind of simple. I'm going to ask him the questions, and he's going to answer, all right? Is that going to be easy enough to follow? <laughs> and so, in order to get through all of these questions, I'm going to jump right into them, so are you ready for this? I'm ready. All right. So in week four of this series, we had a special guest speaker. Her name was Aisha Brooks Lytle, and she spoke about the pain that can occur in life, and she had a tremendous story of choosing to dance in light of the pain that she endured in life, and it was a great example of of pursuing God and trusting in Jesus, even in the, the most difficult of situations. But one of the, the questions that just typically arises from situations like this, from hardship and pain and just uh, sickness, a question that, that has been talked about for thousands of years, and it's an age-old question, so good luck answering this. <laughs> but here is the question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Mm. Well, that's a big question, and we could spend several weeks unpacking all of that, and we could even develop a series around that very question, and we probably should do that at some point. But it's also a great question because I think sometimes we look out and we see injustice, in particular, regarding this question that that bad things seem to happen to good people, and that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's interesting because I think sometimes we assume that if I could play the role of God for a moment, and if I had that kind of ability and that kind of power, just for a moment, one of the things that we would probably do is get rid of injustice and get rid of bad things happening to good people. So if we feel that way, why doesn't God, who has the ability and has the power, from our viewpoint, do something about this. So I want to approach answering this maybe with a theological response, which theology is the study of God, and so there are some things we can know about God and study about him that lead to an answer. So there's a theological response and then a a personal response. So we'll start with the theological response. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's a couple of verses put together that are somewhat fascinating. 
and give us a perspective on what God sees and then what we see. And so I'm paraphrasing the verses a bit, but they basically say, we see things imperfectly. It's like a scattered image in a mirror. There's another version that says, we see through a glass darkly. So you you can see through the glass, but it's dark and it's fuzzy. So we see things imperfectly, and it goes on to say that what we know now is partial and incomplete. So while there are some things that we can know about God, like his personality and what he commands and what he likes and what he doesn't like, based on what is given to us in Scripture. This is how we know about God and how we learn about him. While there are some things we can know, there are things that we cannot know because we see imperfectly. It's like looking at scattered images in a mirror, and what we now know is partial and incomplete. And so I think in the middle of trying to seek an answer to why do bad things happen to good people, you have to step back every once in a while and say, I can't see it all, but I can trust in the God who does see it all and knows the whole story. And so i got to step back and trust the Almighty, even though it hurts. And even though we want that answer, the reality is we see things in part. So that's kind of a theological response. I think a personal response is this. In the middle of being sometimes disappointed with God, being frustrated, he has given us something that we can look to that is the ultimate expression of his love. So while we sometimes get frustrated with God and why doesn't he do this or why does he do this over here and we may even question or doubt his love, there is a tangible thing that we can always look to that points to his immeasurable love, which is not exclusive, it's inclusive. It's available for all people. It doesn't matter who they are. And this tangible thing is the cross. It's God giving his son who came and died on our behalf. It's the advent. And we're going to get into that in the month of December as we celebrate the coming of Christ and his arrival. And then he lived and he died and he rose again. And so the cross is this incredible, beautiful picture that displays the depths of God's love. And so even when we wonder and we're confused, why doesn't God do this? Doesn't seem like he's acting on my behalf or he's not doing what I would do. We have to step back and understand, I can't see it all, but yet I can see the cross, which is the ultimate display of God's love for humanity. And, and to circle back on the, the theological uh, point that you were making, you and I, have, we've, we've talked about this particular question uh, even before this morning. And you shared with me uh, a unique idea and a unique, I think, angle at the whole uh, question that's even presented and how it might even be a flawed question. Can you, can you just share some of, some of that idea? Yeah, and sometimes this is painful to hear because, again, we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But when you walk through the corpus of Scripture, 
one of the things you come to a conclusion on is that there are actually no good people. We're all sinners, and we have all missed the mark. That's what sin means. We've missed the mark. So, missed the mark of what? Well, we've missed the mark of God's standard of perfection and His holiness. And so that can be somewhat discouraging to consider. But again, the beauty of God's love is that He recognized this, He knew this, and so He sent His Son to die in our place to satisfy the wrath of His Father so that we could be made right with God again, the cross. So when we get disappointed with God, when we're frustrated, when we doubt, we continue to look up to the cross and understand that this is His display of love for all of us. So then it, it kind of changes the perspective to then anything good that happens to us is just God's grace on our lives and, and Him choosing to... Yeah, we don't actually deserve that. And so anything good that happens to us, which we do experience good in life, even in the middle of pressure and pain, that's all an extension of the mercy and grace of God being good to us. And then another, another very serious question falls out of this same conversation. And I believe it deals with one of the very hardest of circumstances that anyone can walk through, oftentimes leaving us just with more questions than any answers. And so here is the, the question that was presented. The Bible says that God will not give you more than you can handle. But how does this apply to those who commit suicide? Well, that question probably is coming from a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And it says this, that when we are tempted, and you have to remember that the New Testament was written in Greek, and so that word tempted can also mean tested. So when we are tempted or when we are tested, the verse says that God does not give us more than what we can stand. So that's good news. That's encouraging. The verse goes on to say that with the temptation or with that test, God will show us a way out so that we can endure. There's two interesting parts to that verse there. God giving us a way out. The language there, the construction of the sentence indicates that God will give us an egress, that there is a way to escape. And again, that's encouraging too. So I have this pressure, this pain in my life. God says he will not give us more than what we can stand. With this pressure, I actually can escape that. And we like the sound of that because when we have These pressures and pain, we want to get away from it. We want to be a stranger to that pain. But the second part of that verse talks about how we can endure. And the idea of that word is that God often calls us to stand up under the pressure or the pain that we experience in life. And when you point that back to God giving us an egress or an escape... The conclusion, based on, again, the construction of the words there, is that often the way out is not getting away from the pain, but standing up under it with the strength and the grace that God gives to us, and that's actually how we escape. We endure. We stand up under. 
So, God is faithful. He will not give us more than what we can stand. He provides a way out so that we can endure. Either this is true or it's not. I believe it's true. So what about those who commit suicide? And I want to say, first of all, for anyone here who has lost a friend or a family member to suicide, the pain of this is indescribable. It's just so deep. And you walk through life with this, and you don't really have answers, just a ton of questions. It's a very difficult thing to endure, and I don't want to minimize that. And for those of you here who have walked through that, you you understand that, you get that. The pain, it just never leaves. But I do believe that God provides a way out from pressure and pain in life. Unfortunately, often in our humanity, we have to remember that we are imperfect. So in our humanity, there are times when people feel so hurt and so deep into despair that they feel the only way out, the only escape, is to take their life. And this is so sad, so sad. And it's also why as a church, as a body of people who are doing our best to follow hard after Christ, that we cry with those who cry and weep with those who weep and we continually and often extend arms of compassion to all people at all times because I don't think we ever know that the person we're serving or loving or encouraging or crying with, that that very event where we have the opportunity to be with them and to encourage them might be the one thing that helps them stand up under this pressure that is in their life. Mm-hmm. And th- this is something that, that I have personally uh, have been affected by a couple of times as, as recently as about a year and a half ago, a very close friend of mine uh, took his life. And the, the pain of that at mm-hmm. times, even now, you, I feel that. Mm-hmm. And so what, what encouragement can you provide for perhaps someone here uh, dealing with these thoughts for themselves or even uh, to those who, who may know someone, a family member, a friend who is, who is struggling with this? Or in other words, how can one find hope in the darkest of situations? If you're here and the pressure of life is just weighing in on you, and there are these thoughts that maybe the best way out is to take my life, I would seek to encourage you this way. God loves you deeply, deeply. And I don't know any other way to phrase that. God just loves you deeply and I believe has the ability to lead you through the darkest tunnels of life and into light and into life. So give Jesus a chance or give Jesus another chance. And please, if you're feeling that way, reach out and talk to somebody. Talk to somebody, please. And for those who may have these individuals in your life, this is why we talked about this last week. We said, look, you got to look up every once in a while 
and, and get away from the stuff in front of us and, and devices. And you've got to look up and you've got to look out at people. And you've got to recognize that here's a person. I don't know everything that's happening in their life. I don't have to know. But they may need some encouragement and some love and compassion from me. And so we've got to give ourselves margin. We're so busy. Sometimes we don't look out and recognize all of the need right around us. It's not far. And so we've we got to look up and extend compassionate arms and not walk away from people who communicate the depths of what's happening in their life. We have to be in constant touch with them to love them and encourage them. And then, and then lastly, for, for this conversation, there, there, there's a question that reoccurs every time we, we offer these FAQ opportunities. So I think it's worth uh, addressing uh, once again because in, in these types of, of moments, we need as much help sometimes as we can possibly get. So the question is, is it biblical to take medication for anxiety, pain, depression, etc.? Because in some of these times, depending on God to fix or solve issues can seem too hard. I think it's okay. And it's not unbiblical to take medicine. But I think in the process of doing that, you don't stop trusting God. So the sentence is kind of built as it's an either-or thing. And I don't think we need to view it that way. There is a time to trust in God. But if medicine is needed, and that's being encouraged by those who are providing medical care for us, I think taking that doesn't deny our trust in God. Sometimes you need both. So I don't see it as an either-or. It's not unbiblical to do that. We do have a great example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is a book written by Paul. He's an apostle, a prolific writer of the New Testament, and he's writing to a young leader in the church named Timothy. And the passage is somewhat humorous because it seems like Paul's a little frustrated with Timothy. Like, you seem to be getting sick a lot. Like, what's happening there? And I think there were some pressures on Timothy that were mounting and Paul said, we need you around for the long haul. We're trying to build the church. We're trying to point people to Christ. We're trying to give out the gospel. So you have to get healthy. This is important. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul actually says, Timothy, here's the deal. I want to give you a prescription. Here's what I want for you. I want you to drink a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. Now, I don't think he encouraged Timothy to drink wine just for the sake of having a beverage. In this culture... Wine was used for medicinal purposes. And the science of medicine was in its early stages and growing, and they would often use that as a means of caring for themselves. And so we've got a great example here of Paul saying, you're sick, something's not right, you need to fix that, and so drink a little bit of wine. But what we know, based on the letters of Paul and his encouragement to Timothy, is he never told Timothy to stop trusting in God, do this over here, but not that. So I don't think it's an either-or thing, but it's not unbiblical to take medicine. And then to kind of shift gears a little bit, in week five, we spoke on money pressures and finances. So here's the question that was presented. You spoke of becoming a percentage giver, giving a percentage of your income to God's work. Do I give off of my gross income, or do I give off the net income? (laughs) 
this is always the question. And I, I think the answer to that is it doesn't matter. I think sometimes we create extra biblical commands that you don't find in Scripture, so I think you have a choice there of what you want to do. I personally give off the gross, and that's something I feel challenged by God to do. But this brings up something a little bit bigger and a couple of thoughts just regarding giving and being a percentage giver. Start somewhere, whatever that looks like for you, and that's probably going to be different for each person. So during that week, we talked about give a percentage of your income to God so that God can accomplish his work in this community and around the world. And this is what we do. This is how we honor God and say thanks to him for giving something to us. So start somewhere. But I would also encourage you not to get comfortable with where you may be today, that you want to continually stretch yourself and grow your faith in this sensitive area. And that's a good thing to look in the mirror and say, how how am I doing regarding this? The other part of that is be a cheerful giver. And what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is a very fascinating verse that indeed says this, a cheerful giver is something that makes God happy. And so I think we're always trying to ask, or at least I do here and there, how can I please God with my life and how can I make him happy? Well, what we find in 2 Corinthians is a very practical way. Here's how you please God. You give and you give cheerfully. And that word there means don't give begrudgingly, which can be hard to do because we like hanging on to our stuff. I know I do. So I I give online now. It's just so convenient and so easy. And I find myself when I'm in these seasons of generosity and I'm giving of what God has given to me that I'll punch in an amount. And then you kind of look at it and you're like, eh. you know, maybe I need to back off of that a little bit because this is coming and I've got this expense over here. And you just kind of hit send and you're like, okay, I, I'm just going to do it. Well, that's not being a cheerful giver. And so I don't want to give begrudgingly. I do from time to time, but I want to be a cheerful giver. And so now when I do that, I have a little time where I say, okay, God, uh, this is yours. And... I'm happy about it, and here we go, and you kind of talk yourself into the moment, so you know, you, you, got, you start somewhere, and be a cheerful giver, and have fun with it. We, we have to remember about this, and we talked about this during that particular Sunday. Giving is an act of worship, and when I give, I am saying to God, thank you for what you have given to me. And I'm now going to live off of less so that I can be generous and give to you so that you can accomplish your purposes in this community and around the world. We have to remember, this is a vibrant and a visible way to say thank you to God. And so this isn't about doing something to earn God's favor in our life or to to earn some sort of standing Mm. with him. This is just simply trying to obey something that he's asked us to do. Yeah, it's it's about simple obedience. It really is. Well, then I think this is appropriate even for this time of year in particular. How do I give if I don't think that I can financially make it happen in in my budget? So there's just no money left to give. I would encourage you to flip that question a little bit 
and say, how can I not give? And this is what should enter into all of our thinking. How can I not give? Because I believe we are wired to be generous and to share. And so we actually have to talk ourselves into not giving, and we often do that, and we can get comfortable without that. So what I would encourage is you've got to take a hard look at the budget and what can stop or what can go away so that I create a little bit of margin so that I can get back into how God has designed me, and that is to give. And I would say this as well. Giving is an act of faith. And and here's why. When we give, we're acknowledging to God, here's 100% of my resources, but I'm intentionally choosing to live on less so that God can do what he wants to do. Well, when we do that, we're living by faith. And we might not always think that, but we really are. That's a remarkable thing. Like I'm living by faith because I'm not using 100% of my resources on me. And so when we don't give, I think in a real way we're not living by faith. And Scripture also tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. So uniquely when it comes to this area of finances, there are practical ways that we can honor God and we can please him with our generosity, and we should pursue that. And then kind of shifting once again uh, to a, a different topic, in week three we had fun talking about the parental perplexities. And so I think a lot of questions came out of that day, and I think the one that, that uh, was presented here is pretty common. So here's the question. What does the Bible or God say about parenting conflicts? when parents cannot agree on how to raise or lead their children on the same page as a couple? I feel I can speak into this a little bit because Tanya and I have six children, and they all have different personalities. And while Tanya and I I don't feel are disagreeable people, it's not really in our nature, we do occasionally disagree on what we should be doing with these different personalities that are in our home. And so we have conflict. So we have to find a way to push through that. A few thoughts. I think, first of all, you have to begin with the why. And and why is there conflict? Is there a feeling of fear underneath a decision? Or is there another emotion that might play into this? And there maybe there may not be, but I think it's good to start with the why. Why is there disagreement here? Is there something else underneath this particular problem that we're having? And then secondly, I think often you're dealing with things that are not right and wrong. It's not like it's good versus evil. And boy, that's just an evil thing over here, so we're clearly not going to do that. So I think there are times as a couple where we submit to each other. And we default to the other person and maybe how they're feeling and what they're walking through because, again, it's not a matter of good and evil, right and wrong. The other plan may indeed work. And so you give that a shot, and when it doesn't work, you make fun of them and put it in their face that you made the wrong choice, right? This is what we do. So it's it's probably not a matter of right and wrong. you got to try some things out. And then thirdly... I would say you might have to bring in a neutral third party. 
So a non-family member who you both trust, that can bring clarity into the situation. But I think if you do that, you have to be willing to agree to implement. And agree upon third party. Yeah, and agree, <laughs> you've got to agree upon the third party. And then you have to commit even before going in that you're going to agree on what they say because it's going to slant one way mm-hmm. or the other. So you have to walk through that. And then I would say, finally, unity in front of the kids. It's really mm-hmm. important. So you debate you have conflict, you fight fair behind closed doors, but then there is unity in front of the kids. You can't walk out and say, well, we're going to run with my idea because dad's idea was just dumb. <laughs> now, it may have been dumb, perhaps, but unity in front of the kids. So I, chase the why and unity in front of the kids, bring in a neutral third party, and then you have to remember you got to default to each other a little bit in this. And I think that's a way you can resolve some conflict in parenting. So to sneak in a little question here, we're talking about families. This week is Thanksgiving, so I'm assuming you're going to have some sort of Thanksgiving meal. Mm-hmm. Well, so what? <laughs> I'm not sure what that was. <laughs> There's your answer. All right. Moving on. So the question is, what is your favorite Thanksgiving meal side item? Oh, a side item. Okay. Throw turkey off the table. It's a side item. A side item. I'm going to go with, uh, Tanya makes this side item. uh, It's a broccoli casserole. Now, broccoli sounds awful. You lost me. But if you put enough cheese and stuff oh. on top of the broccoli, it, it makes it amazing. And so that's one of my favorite side Thanksgiving dishes. Well, that's wrong. Of course. Because everybody knows it's mashed potatoes, right? <laughs> like that works. Some Idaho mashed potatoes <laughs> with some butter, maybe even some gravy. Mm. So, all right. Good call. Everyone's hungry, and we all want to get out of here now. But the last question for today has to do with, in week two of this series, we we talked about racial uh, tensions. And so the question is, what has Valley Point continued to do to help bridge the racial divisions in our own community? That was a really powerful week for us Mm -hmm. as we talked about something we've never talked about here and how there's so much division and racial tension in our country and how can we walk through this in a way that heals and brings reconciliation and also honors God. So we had, we had a great conversation. I think one of the great things that came out of that week is I had an individual contact me to say, I would like to speak with Joe. So if you weren't here that week, I interviewed an African American couple that comes to our church, they were gracious enough to let me just talk to them about their life and their experience and their fears and their hopes and everything that is a part of that as they move forward and raise their children and even their grandchildren now. Great discussion. So Joe was uh, the man in the conversation and the individual contacted me and said, you know what, this has been a challenge for me throughout life. And... I'm trying to get into the lane of being a reconciler and not, uh, not an advocate for racial harm. And so would I be able to talk to Joe? 
And so I said, well, you know, let, let me find out. So I talked to Joe and said, hey, you have somebody who wants to talk to you about some sensitive things? And Joe said, I'd love to do that. That would be great. And so they're in the process of beginning those conversations. And I share that because if that's the only thing that came out of that Sunday, that would be so worth it to know that there are at least a few people who are trying to figure this out and get into the lane of being reconcilers and not haters. Mm-hmm. So that, that's wonderful news. And I would say the other thing that came out of that day is just a lot of conversations, a lot of emails and phone calls to me about the couple and the words that they shared and were we going to post that so they could share it with other people and just a lot of good conversations that I think are putting us as a church into the right place in regards to this. A few other things that are happening to help us as a faith community is, you know, our love days continually, I think, help us as a community be reconcilers. Uh, Today we have a love day. Today, you you probably walked in and saw a ton of groceries. We are giving away all of that food to the Siloam Food Pantry here in Bethel Township, as well as to the Sunday Breakfast Mission in Wilmington. And that goes to all kinds of people and cultures. And that's great. And so in a unique way, and maybe in an indirect way, we are being part of reconciling and just giving things away to people in need. And we're not asking questions. We, We just give it away. That's what we do. And so I think this is part of the process. I would say, too, uh, the week that Aisha spoke was another powerful week for us, and I had the chance with my wife, Tanya, and some other members of our worship team to go to the church in Philadelphia that she partners with. And it is a very racially diverse church, and they're working hard to reconcile that community and some unique things happening there. So we went... And you'll love this, as part of their church service, afterwards they serve a meal. So can you imagine walking out and there's people there to serve you food? That would be amazing. We should, we should do that someday. Well, we were there to, to serve the meal. And uh, it was just so fun talking with residents, by and large, who walk to that church. It's, it's right in a neighborhood. And so they're walking in and just got to talk to them and interact with them. Again, very racially diverse, so fun. And so we're having conversations with Aisha and that ministry about how we can continue to help them as they're a part of racial reconciliation right in the heart of Philadelphia. So those are a few of the things that we're doing. And I would continue to say it's not just about what the church does collectively because we cannot forget you are the church as you leave. Church doesn't stop. It's not just here as you go to work, as you go to school, as you're in your neighborhood, as you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, you are the church there. And so we all have to take it upon ourselves to look at all people, no matter culture, no matter color, it doesn't matter. We have to view them as individuals made in the image of God, and they're worthy of all of our love. And so as we go, we have to be about the process of reconciliation that way. Thank you. And on behalf of Valley Point, thank you for being candid with us, for answering difficult questions, and for continuing conversations that are important for our faith community. So can you help me thank Pastor Aaron? Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.